Good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 149 this morning. Pastor Tim just asked that I would continue to work through these psalms of praise. And so this week we'll be in Psalm 149, and then next week Tim will be finishing up with Psalm 150, which I'll be referencing a little bit in this passage. (laughs) This psalm has been on my mind now for the last three weeks, and it has been a a really... um, challenging psalm to work through. If you remember, uh, these uh, psalms of praise are the last five psalms of the Psalter, so Psalm 146 to 150. And every single one of them is bracketed with the phrase, Hallelujah, or the way it's translated for us, Praise the Lord. And so we know from the beginning, looking at Psalm 146 and 147 and 148 and 149 and 150, Uh, that the goal of each of these is that together we would praise the Lord. So the question is not what to do, but as Tim has been bringing up with every single one of these, the question now is why praise? And the the beauty of each one of these psalms is that we are, as as Tim said last week, we're looking at uh, a a beautiful diamond from different perspectives and different angles, the same topic of praising God together, but always asking the question, is there more? Why do we praise? Why do we praise? And so hopefully this morning, as we look at Psalm 149, today as a congregation, we can learn to praise the God who saves. So let's read Psalm 149 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For God, the Lord, takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exalt in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. God, Father, we we praise you. We praise you for your steadfast covenant love. We ask that you'd open our hearts to receive your word. We pray we as your people would make little of ourselves and much of Jesus Christ. Bless our time in your word. Amen. So as I've been looking through this psalm, I I wanted to do my best to give us some sort of just structure looking at the way the psalm is is structured for us. And paying attention to the structure of a psalm is really important where things are repeated or things are said twice or a thought is continued longer than another. And as I said before, the, the notable structure of all these psalms of praise is that bracketed statement, praise the Lord. And so we know the goal of this, of this uh, psalm is that it will be sung as a praise to God. And in singing it, we'd be given the reason for this praise. And so I kind of divided up the psalm into three sections to help us follow the, the kind of train of thought of this psalm here. So uh, if you want to write this down, you can. I, I just broke it into three sections and we'll look at these three together. But we're going to spend a lot of time on the middle one. So I just broke this up. Verses one through three. I, I, I titled as the command to praise. Verses 1 through 3 is the command to praise. 
then verse 4 is our reason to praise. It's the second section. Verse 4 is our reason to praise. And then verses 5 through 9 is the goal of praise. I'll just say that again because it really helped me when I began to think of it this way. So once again, verses 1 through 3 are the command to praise. Verse 4 is our reason to praise. And then 5 through 9 is the goal of our praise. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 together. This is the command of our praise. I'm going to read it again here, but just keep these three questions in mind as we read verses 1 through 3. Considering this command, here's three questions. Who is to be praised? Then, who is to praise him? And lastly, how does he want to be praised? Let's read this together, verses 1 through 3. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. So we ask that first question, who is to be praised? And this is really important because every single one of these psalms is that bracketed statement again of praise the Lord. But your Bibles will hopefully at least make some note of this in one way or another that the word Lord there in the beginning is in all caps, which means it's not praying some random, it's not praising some random Lord. When it's in all caps, it's saying that name means Yahweh. It's praising the one true living God. And so that we have to answer that first before we can even study this psalm to say, what is the purpose of this psalm? It's corporate worship to sing this psalm together to praise the one true living God. We have to work from there first. If we don't have that in place, if our hearts are not in check, if and, and if and if we uh, know anything about ourselves, we are wayward and want to turn to other lords and turn to other gods and make idols of our own selves. And so here, the immediate command is to praise the one true God and Him alone. The second question was this: Who is to praise this Lord? Who is to praise the one true God? And and this is actually overemphasized in verses 1 through 3. Just look with me again here. In verse 1, we see first his praise in what? The assembly of the godly. In verse 2, let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice. Let them praise his name. So first, it is the one true God is to be worshipped in Psalm 149, to be praised. But it's his people that are to praise him. His chosen covenant people. Notice how overemphasized it is. The assembly, Israel, their children. It's overemphasized that it's His personal covenant people that are to praise Him. And then lastly, how is He to be praised? And I think this is really important to note. But once again, there is the, I think the first and most important thing to answer and how should He be praised is together. He has to be praised Together, all of us, right, in the assembly. We, we gathered this morning to praise God together. God is, uh, has not called us to just worship and praise as individuals. And when we came to gather this morning, as it was said this morning, we didn't come to worship and praise as individuals. God called us together to assemble to praise Him. And so in this psalm, we're commanded to praise Him together. Rejoice together. How else are we to... Praise our God. Look here at verse 2. There's two, uh, essentially it's the, 
It's the same statement said twice in two different ways. So let Israel be glad and let the children of Zion rejoice. And so I really hope as we uh, grow closer to our God, that there is a sense of gladness and joy in our praise. So we're to do it together and we're to do it with gladness of heart, to rejoice in our Maker, our King. And then verse 3 tells us then more of how He is to be praised. Let him praise his name with dancing, making melody with him, to him with tambourine and lyre. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful testament to the gift of music that God has given us. And I think ultimately what we can see here is God wants us to praise him together, to praise him with gladness and sincere joy, and to praise him with our voices and the scale of our hands. Not bringing glory to ourselves, but just bringing all the glory to him. And so this is not new, and in fact, we're going to see this in Psalm 150, and we've been seeing the same command in every psalm. So this is, not, this is not anything new, but it's important to know that this is said again and again and again. Let's praise Him together, and let's do so joyfully. And then we're going to get to verse 4, which is our section, second section here. It's the reason to praise. Now, if you remember back to the other psalms of praise, the reasons were longer. And in, in Psalm 149, we are only given one verse with a four statement. So why? We're getting the question answered for us, but only in one verse. We're going to just really camp here for a little while. I think it's important. and It's been something that I've been trying to struggle through these last few weeks of how can we understand more deeply verse 4. Let's read it together. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. According to Psalm 149, another reason to praise our Lord is that He takes pleasure in us. Another reason to praise God is that He delights in His people. The Lord is pleased with His people. I want to expound on that a little deeper. What does that mean? I think the second half of verse 4 actually answers that for us. We have this four statement, for the Lord takes pleasure. We, we praise Him because He takes pleasure in His people. And then it gives us this action statement, He, the Lord, adorns the humble with salvation. Tim talked about this in Psalm uh, 147, when it talks about God lifting up the humble and casting down the wicked. It's important to note here, this word humble really has two different ways it could be understood. And to make it simple, we understand humble most of the time as an attitude. But if you remember in Psalm 147, Tim made the point there when it said God lifts up the humble, he actually was saying God lifts up the afflicted or those in humble position. Right? This is different than an attitude. And here this word is the same word where it could mean humble and attitude. But if you think about the, the, the phrasing of this psalm and, and the context of Israel's history, uh, it makes far more sense here to say he adorns the humble of position or the afflicted ones with salvation. And if you think about the ministry of Jesus Christ, who did he draw to? The afflicted ones, the sinners, the sick, the poor, the prostitutes, the needy, the tax collectors, the ones who were afflicted, he drew near to give them salvation. And so here we have this wonderful reminder to praise God because He takes pleasure in us. Let's expound it a little more, though. 
What does it look like for God to take pleasure in his people? What does it look like for God to take pleasure in his people? I had a, a Romans 8 read this morning, and I think it speaks uh, very clearly to this. I'm just going to read the, the um, <clears throat> part of Romans 8 here around verse 31. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think of a passage like John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Or even in Ephesians 2, think of this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So we have to understand first, God is pleased to save us. God is pleased to save us. I think that's the first way in which God shows his pleasure in his people. And I'll say this over and over again, it's not that there was anything pleasurable in us. It's not that we came to the table with something to offer and God was like, I can't live without that person. But of God's own free choice in choosing, he chose to love first when we didn't love him. He chose to save. We were unsavable. He chose to love when we were utterly unlovable. So first, God is pleased to save. Have you ever thought about that? That when God called you to the table, he wasn't inviting you to sit on the floor. He said, come sit and eat with me. Sorry, let me think of the second part. Not only is God pleased to save us, God is pleased to sanctify us. Think of Philippians 2, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for whose good pleasure? His. His good pleasure. Hebrews 12 reminds us that God proves his love to us by disciplining us as his children. And our fathers did their best, what they thought was best. But God disciplines us for our own good. Or in Romans 8, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Or Ephesians 5 gives a wonderful picture that's really actually not about marriage. It really is more about the gospel saying, as the bride of Christ, he's going to wash us in his word to make us without spot or blemish. So God is pleased to sanctify us. God is pleased to save. and God is pleased to sanctify. And thirdly, God is pleased to glorify us one day. He has given us an inheritance that's imperishable. He's given us not just life now in Christ, but life in eternity with Christ. And one day God will wipe the very tears from our eyes. And all of this was of his own choosing, of no obligation for his own glory, for his own pleasure, to show his love to sinners like us. This is how God shows his pleasure in his people. And so if I could overemphasize this, as Christians, God is pleased with us. Once again, not because of what we've done, because God is doing a wonderful, loving work in the hearts of sinners that without him would have never turned. So how should we respond then to this pleasure God takes in us? And I think there's been struggles with this idea of God's love. We've seen it go one of two ways. Either some people are uh, take this wonderful grace of God that abounds beyond our sin and then use it for license to go and live however they want, saying, if I live that way, 
I can do. If, if God really loves me, I can live however I want, and I'm good to go. I have my ticket. Or the other way. You fall into the other ditch where you've seen people take license for this sin, and so every time something like this passage comes up, you bristle up because you're so either filled with guilt or shame or you don't really understand the work of the gospel in your life to really be able to say, Christian, God is pleased with you. And so instead, you ignore these passages and are afraid to really uh, learn what it means to be loved by God. Paul words it so well in Romans 2, reminding us. I'll just read here in Romans 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, Paul makes it clear that it's actually the love of God. When Christians really know the love that God shows for them, that's what drives us to repent. That's the love that softens our heart. That's the love that convicts us of sin. That's the love that sanctifies us. That's the love that washes us. That's the love that assures us of His grace and mercy to us in Christ. That's what leads us to repent. So this wonderful and special love that God pours on His chosen people was meant to help us live a life holy and acceptable before Him. So let's be careful once again not to fall in one of those two places into license or into legalism, but to understand God takes pleasure to save, God takes pleasure to work in us, and God takes pleasure one day in glorifying us with His Son. So what then is, is the, the response in Christian? I think it's, uh, for us as Christians, I think it's important first to be reminded, as I said before, that he, God is pleased with you, God was pleased to save you, to sanctify you, and to glorify you. But ultimately, what this great love and delight that God has in His chosen people should do is humble us. Should humble us. That there is not one person on this earth that pleased the Lord aside from Jesus Christ, and He died so that we could be pleasing in the sight of God. It's the Lord who saves us not out of obligation, but out of love and pleasure. He saved of His own choice and for His own glory. He wanted to make His great love known to a greatly unlovable people. So we need to be humbled by the great love of God that is shown to us. And lastly, we need to praise God. This is what the psalmist tells us to do. Of this great love and delight, uh, we need to utter praise back to God together. Let's praise the Lord. Gather and praise Him. Praise Him with rejoicing and glad hearts and clashing cymbals and loud instruments and heartfelt singing. Uh, I'm just going to read. It's right next to your Bibles there in Psalm 150 in verse 3, it says, Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so if you don't know how to respond to this love that God has for His people, then just praise Him and thank Him and be humbled by this love that none of us earned or deserved, but has been freely given to his people. So Christian, God takes pleasure in you. So praise him. That is our reason in Psalm 149 to praise him. Here comes verses 5 through 9. I really had to do some researching on this passage to try and understand what 
the context was of this. And in all reality, there is no passage in the Bible that connects this to any event in Israel's history, so we don't really know. For example, Psalm 51, we know is David confessing his sin when Nathan the prophet confronted him. Or Psalm 22, we know, eventually points us and shows us the resurrection of Christ. But here with Psalm 149, we don't know any sort of context when we read these verses. So let's read them together. And what I hope to do is just focus on some themes instead to help us get the bigger picture of what in the world verses 5 through 9 could mean for us. Look at verses 5 through 9. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Now, once again, we come to a passage like this that maybe we could be initially uncomfortable with, especially when you can't find a context, you're trying to figure out how does this apply. But we have to come back to the fact that these are psalms, which means they are not ultimately for personal study, they're for corporate worship. These were written as corporate worship songs to be sung. And so this is one of the psalms that we need to be singing, is Psalm 149. And so when we work from there, we realize we have no choice. We can't look over this. We have to think through this somehow. And as I began to look at this, I realized that verses 5 and 6 were really helpful, but but before we look at 5 and 6 closely, I want to remind you first that there was a judgment written. And that was that God was going to cast out the Canaanites from Israel to give his chosen people the promised land. A promise that was doubted originally, and God sends them off into the wilderness. But eventually the faithful generation comes, and they trust in God, and God sends them in to cast out a wicked nation that was shedding innocent blood all over God's chosen land for his people, the place where God was going to dwell. And so he casts out the Canaanite in the book of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua. And if you remember at the end of Joshua it says that God fulfilled all the promises that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All of them were fulfilled and he gave them rest on all sides. And so the best that I could understand was it could be talking about this, this this perfect judgment that God used his own people to bring judgment on wicked nations. But for us, it looks a little different. And this is what I want to emphasize very briefly. Just look at verse 5 and 6 again with me. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Remember, the psalmist is always going to use imagery to, to paint us a picture of something we're supposed to understand. And, and I, I think uh, when we have this idea of them singing praise from their beds, the first thing that came to my mind was other psalms where David's able to sleep with joy and peace amongst his enemies, right? They can praise God from their beds. They're in rest. They're in uh, reprieve. They've been provided for. But then in verse 6, we see this, let the high praises of God be in their throats and a two-edged sword in their hands. And to what purpose? He goes forward to execute judgment on all groups of people, kings, nobles, and so on. But I want you to notice there is a, a theme throughout the Bible that I want us to take note of right here. In verse 6, I don't think that the high praises of their throats and the two-edged sword are two different things. A lot, of, a lot of people have agreed here that this high praise that is from their throats, the spoken praise of God, is 
the two-edged sword. And let me just explain what I mean by that. If we think towards the New Testament, we think first that the Word of God is called a two-edged sword. And it's that two-edged sword that can go to the deepest and pierce through the deepest, darkest parts of the soul. We think of how Jesus Christ is portrayed in Revelation, and He is called the Word of God, the faithful and true one. And if you remember in Revelation, He speaks from His mouth to destroy His enemies. And what comes from His mouth? A two-edged sword. And so here, I think we can understand, at least in a, in a New Testament context, that we still have a battle to fight, but our battle looks a little different. In the Old Testament, they were fighting a physical enemy over a physical parcel of land for a physical purpose. God had a plan in a redemptive history, ultimately that Israel, through Abraham, right, would bless all nations. But not Israel, that through Abraham to Israel, then to Christ, the Messiah, the one who really could save, the true king, the true prophet, the true priest, could come and save. And if you remember, when Jesus comes to the promised land, does he cast out Canaanites? casts out sin and death and sickness and he meets with the widows and the fatherless and the afflicted ones. Why? Because the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. And so our battle has changed. We're no longer fighting for a random parcel of land. Christ has come to take over the world. We're no longer fighting with a physical enemy with physical swords. Our battle is the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're battling the hardened hearts of men and women with the Word of God and the Spirit of God living in us. Christ came not to take back a small part of the world, but to take the world. Right? He came not in the world to condemn it, but that through Him the world might be saved. This is the promise, the same promise that is given to the King of Psalm 2, that the ends of the earth would be His. Or of Jesus talked about in Isaiah 9 that the increase of his government would be no end. Or in Isaiah 42 that he would not grow faint or weary until justice is established in the earth. Or Psalm 22, talking about the crucifixion that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Or recently we've been praying Right through the Lord's Prayer every Sunday recently, Thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or Matthew 28, Christ has all authority over heaven and earth and tells us to go make disciples of all nations. Or Philippians 2, right? The poem concerning Christ's humility and sacrificing himself and modeling for us what it means to consider others more significant than ourselves. Here it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And lastly, we see in Revelation 12, a chapter concerning the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. It says this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even unto death. So just to clarify, to make it simple, our battle is this. We have to go and make disciples of the nations. And how do we do it? By realizing we can take delight in God because God takes delight to save us, to work in us, to sanctify us, to commission us, to discipline us, to chastise us, and to one day 
glorifies. I'm just going to read this. This is about that two-edged sword. This is a quote from Christopher Ashe. He says this, In some way the praises of God in their mouths are a double-edged sword in their hands. It's by their gladness in God that they will conquer the world. Instead of giving a reason, as in verse 4, we are given a goal in verses 7 through 9, which is worldwide conquest, the victory promised to the king of Psalm 2. It's by glad praise that weak, persecuted, even martyred people will conquer the world. What do I mean by that? I just mean this. That we have a commission to go and make disciples. And Christ has promised to be with us. And more than just that, we've overemphasized the fact this morning that He takes pleasure in His people. And if, if we catch anything of this message this morning, focus on verse 4. And ask yourself, is God pleased to work in me as His child? I think we can understand, especially when we see that He did not even spare His own Son. The answer is yes. The Lord is pleased to work in you. And so we can be reminded, not only is the Lord pleased to work in you, He's pleased to work in the lives of others around us. That this gospel mission for us is a work that's pleasing for God to do. That the act of changing hearts, the act of saving sinners, this is something that God is pleased to do. So we need to praise Him. And and really, our praise of God, when we praise Him together, that is our warfare on the world. That's our warfare on the flesh. That's our warfare against the devil. We're saying we praise God and we praise Him alone who has saved us and loved us and has promised to be with us until the end of the age. And so our reason to praise is that God takes pleasure in His people. He was pleased to save His afflicted ones. Christian, through Jesus, God takes pleasure in so the goal of our high praise then is that the victory, uh, sorry, the, the goal in the high praise of God is the victory of Jesus. As I said before, our praise to God together is warfare against the world, the flesh and the devil. We praise our God who's delighted to save, sanctify, and delighted to give us eternity with him. And so how does this all apply? I think first and foremost, we need to together grow in gladness of heart. We need to grow in gladness of heart. The world has always been dark. I, I'm trying to work on not being surprised anymore. Because I, you know, I spend very little time on social media anymore just because every time I go on there, I'm like, the world is falling apart. And then I remember all that the apostles went through, and their world was really falling apart. And yet you can hear the words of Paul when he's in jail in the beginning of Philippians. He's in the you know, book of Philippians. He's in jail. And what is he saying? Hey, guess what? The gospel's going forward here. And these other people, they're preaching out of jealousy of me, basically, but the gospel's still going, so I don't care. There's this joyful, this gladness for the end of Philippians where he can rejoice. And I think the part we miss in Philippians 4 is he says, I learned to be content in all circumstances. There's a sense of rejoicing and joy that's in poverty and in wealth, in famine and prosperity. And so for us, I think we just need to grow in gladness that he would call even one of us to salvation. Not only has he done that, he has not called a few people, but now he's called us to go and to bring this wonderful news of the gospel 
to all people, to all languages, to all tongues and tribes and nations of the world. And so let's just delight in that. That while the world falls apart, we are called to be the salt of the earth. That while the world wants to writhe against the truth of God's word, we can stand in the truth knowing that even if we are persecuted and killed and martyred, that Christ has already conquered the world. So let's just take joy and pleasure in the God who was pleased to save us from the beginning. If you remember, I'll just finish with this thought. If you just remember in Acts 2, I'll just reference this. Peter is preaching to the Israelites, and even those, at least according to his context, that crucified Jesus. And he tells them that it was God who predestined beforehand that Christ would suffer. So before any of that, before Christ's coming, before creation, there was this predestined plan by God that Christ would suffer and die to purchase his bride. And the wonderful thing I love about this, uh, Peter's sermon in Acts 2 is he's preaching to people who crucified Christ. He says, and you crucified him, and that was God's plan. And what happens? Thousands come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And so let's be glad, realizing that it's the Lord who fights our battles. Let's be glad in knowing we preach a gospel, a word that does not bring back void. And let's be glad, because as Christians, as God's chosen people, the Lord takes pleasure in us. Not that we have anything to offer, that Christ has given us all that we need. So let's pray. God, we are so thankful for another wonderful day you've given us. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the reminder this Lord this morning that you, Lord, take pleasure in us, not in anything we've done, but just in your own choice to be loving and merciful towards your people, people who are once enemies, but now drawn near. We're thankful for this psalm that reminds us of our command to praise, our reason of praise, and our goal to praise your name, that all nations would praise you, Lord. Help us to be joyful people, even when things are dark, even when things are difficult. Help us not to lose sight of the joy that was set before Christ, because for him, when he had the joy before him, he suffered the cross. So we pray we would take joy in that. In your son's name we pray. Let's take a time now just to meditate on the scriptures this morning, and then we will close with a song of benediction.